0: There's something about the theatre and performing arts, which is, I think, an essential form of human expression. That it will exist in some form, no matter what, because it's primal and it's cardinal or core to our existence.
1: Early last year, here at the Goethe Institute London, we were running a series of workshops that brought theatre makers from around the world together to explore the future of theatre post-Brexit and in the face of rising nationalism. And then COVID-19 came and put everything in person on hold. As lockdown in the UK kept us home, theatre faced an unprecedented threat to its existence. The workshop series Dramatic Episodes started in 2019 and will continue in 2021, and it focuses on the future role of theatre in civil society. One month into the first lockdown last year, I called one of our workshop leaders, Chris Nelson artistic director and CEO at Lyft, the London International Festival of Theatre, to find out how theatres and their people were surviving. In this episode, we're returning to that conversation, because it captures a specific time. It was a time that was stressful and exhausting. We had to make so many changes, reimagine so many events, and stay inside during a gorgeous sunny April. But there was also so much innovation, energy, and radical rethinking of the arts going on. Creators and performers adapted programs and events for the digital realm to keep us all entertained and keep us company while we stayed inside. Now, I've asked Chris to listen back to our conversation with the benefit of hindsight. We'll chat about what it was like for him to revisit his early lockdown thinking and what new predictions he has for the future of theatre. You're listening to Talking Culture, a futures podcast, Talking Culture is a platform for thought-provoking discussions about the future of Europe, the UK and the world. I'm Franca Forth. Through fascinating interviews with thinkers and doers in the arts and cultural sector, this show investigates how creative fields are emerging from the tumultuous present into the future. What role will culture play in a post-Brexit, post-COVID-19, post-colonial world? And how can it contribute to a future that prioritizes sustainability, collaboration, diversity, and inclusion? From the goethe Institute London, this is a podcast about the critical role and value that arts and culture have in our societies. This first interview was recorded in April 2020. Hi Chris, I'm so glad to have you here and talking culture today. How are you doing?
0: I'm very well. Thank you, Franca. It's great to be here.
1: So, how is the theatre scene doing right now? What is the atmosphere like for directors, actors, creative staff, etc.?
0: I think the whole cultural sector is really um, reeling in a lot of ways. For everyone in the cultural sector, there's a, a profound sense of shock, loss, and a bit of a wondering about what to do next. We're week four, I think, into the lockdown here in the UK, and That means for artists and people who work in venues and cultural workers, that means four weeks of work that has stopped. Uh, It means four weeks of businesses at risk and real questions about how the cultural sector can continue. But I've noticed among colleagues and among peers, even on their social media, that while the first two weeks of the shutdown were lots of expressions of grief and some of anger of, of having gigs canceled and not honored or cancellation fees not honored in the right way, that the larger question about society as a whole, the concern and care for people who have compromised immunity in this period of time, uh, the concern and care that artists and cultural workers as members of society and members who of the civic sphere, they're concerned about what's next for London, what's next for the UK, what's next for Europe. There's a kind of larger, more philosophical question going on now about this period that Uh, One of the Lyft 2020 artists, Sonia Hughes, calls the pause. So what happens now in this pause? In really practical terms, I think artists are wondering about, you know, there's been a big rush into the digital sphere of streaming and blogging and online interactions. And artists are wondering how they might repurpose their work for the stage into the digital sphere. And in different countries, there's been different funding schemes that have supported that. And at the same time, a lot of artists and cultural thinkers are are saying, this is time to pause. This is time to replenish. This is time to listen to what's out there and listen to how audiences and society is responding to this incredible, unprecedented change and unprecedented threat to human life. To pause, stop and imagine what possible futures could be.
1: When we first wanted to interview for this podcast, which was before any of this happened, we really just wanted to focus on, you know, why does theatre matter in the 21st century? And I think this question seems so much more topical than ever, really. So what could theatre make out of this time of pause? And what, why should people care about theatre and performative arts, maybe now more than ever?
0: In terms of what theatre can make out of this pause, I mean, we're all in our homes, but things like watching theatre online has become quite popular. And thinking of the the people who do it really well, like the National Theatre, the United Kingdom's National Theatre, their NT Live YouTube channel is really popular. So there's a format for watching stage performance that, if done right, can be really successful. But there's other things about what, I'm not thinking about theatre in its traditional sense as a form, but about what performance can do at this time, which is about provoking and, and bringing out interactions between and among people around a concept or around an idea. Uh, there's a stand-up com- comedian I follow and have worked with in the past called Alison Spittle from Ireland, and she's leading these very kind of performative uh, movie-watching parties where people dress up in costume and they text each other and they, they, they make jokes about the film. So there's a kind of, I mean, that's a cinematic experience and it's definitely a digital experience, but there's certainly performance involved as people try and outquip each other and and they make costumes out of whatever stuff is lying around their house. And, you know, the theater isn't happening right now because one of the key aspects of the theater is gathering around a live event and being with an audience in communion with or witnessing together a live event. So theater I think is kind of on pause and I, I don't think that's such a bad thing.
1: Why should people care about theater or let's say about performative arts maybe now more than ever? Or are people now caring about it now more than ever?
0: Perhaps it draws into contrast or like brings into sharp focus the importance of all kinds of culture in our lives. That gathering around a good film or sharing a good book or watching a, a live performance on together at a moment on screen in, in lieu of ha- being able to do it in the theater. You know, there are lots of festivals and houses around the world. It's not just NT, you know, the Chabun is doing it. Nanterre Amandier is doing it from France. Um, lots of different venues are releasing their work online. There's a, a value in that, I think, that people are recognizing. And, and at the same time, I think there's a feeling, I, and certainly I think it's a feeling that's held among cultural workers, that, you know, the work we do is extremely vital And in this moment in time, the focus of our support and and our, our rallying and our advocacy should be with those in other fields. It should be with those who are working in public transport and those who are working in medical positions and those who are distributing food. I've seen a lot of artists, artists especially, talking about, I don't want to be making work. I don't want to be thinking about ideas, but I do want to be volunteering at my local food bank. There's a sense of solidarity with the larger civic and civil struggle and concern at this moment in time.
1: The COVID-19 pandemic is really one of the most recent challenges to the performing arts. Another issue is that right-wing parties are on the rise in a number of Western countries and democracies. How has that affected the work of theatres, festivals, performative arts?
0: Pre-COVID, this sense of the right, the right and the left and the heightened and extenuated state of global politics on very local levels certainly were flashpoints that artists and cultural institutions were talking about. If you look at the rise of the right in, say, Poland and Hungary, places where certain kinds of performances and certain artists and producing houses have been banned or funding has been cut, or if you look at tension in Brazil, where the federal government is a populist and saying one thing, and different states within Brazil are sort of still advocating for freedom of speech and the right for more politically agi- agitating kinds of performing arts to survive and exist. There's a tension there between the federal state and the regional state. Or if you look in Hong Kong, protests, like speaking with colleagues there, they're kind of becoming the experts of cancellation because The protest movement about Hong Kong losing power towards China has shut down cultural programming for a year almost. And now they're facing also shutdowns because of the coronavirus. Here in the UK, I mean, I think the questions that I had been fielding a lot before coronavirus were about Brexit and about how how Brexit would affect Lyft as an international festival. But the interesting part of that for me, artistically, is, is about what Brexit means. Or what has has meant in a societal way, in a in a psychological way and in a kind of psychic way, of, of what does it mean that the u k is leaving the EU? What does this rise of in xenophobia mean? What does it mean to have a society that is so divided on a fundamental question of borders, movement of people, belonging, affiliation with those that are different with you know different countries or different people? In a society that is so split on that question, the kind of thing I was thinking about were what, what are projects that bring us together, not in the sense of make us all agree, but what are projects that actually teach us how to interrelate? What are our, who are the artists who are finding a way for us to communicate across difference? That was a frame of thinking that I had before this crisis. And and another one that I, that myself and a lot of colleagues have is how does, what does internationalism mean in the face of a climate crisis? And that's perhaps closer to what's happening in Corona, in in terms of the coronavirus, because I think, I mean, Brexit seems like a mile, like a million years away ago or something. Like it, it almost feels like the concerns around Brexit in the face of this, it's a joke. Like it's not, it's, it's transformed. The implications of what not just this what this time means not just economically, but in terms of society, class, what this period teaches us in terms of community solidarity, what people are experiencing as they're alone or or with housemates or with families, uh, but while they're being confined to their homes around the world is really uh, in some cases stark. In some cases, um, uh, there's a new kind of collectivity. I mean, there's a lot of things happening. Right now that we don't know yet what the results will be. And I think that this global experience we're having will change the nature of politics and it'll change the nature of art making and art viewing down the line.
1: This follow-up interview was recorded in February, 2021. Hi, Chris. When we last spoke, you said that you were optimistic about theaters and performative arts post COVID-19. What would you say now, almost a year later? Are you still as optimistic about the future of theaters and performative arts?
0: Yes, I'm optimistic. I am optimistic. I'm, I'm probably ever optimistic. Uh, for the field, um, for the people who choose performing arts in their lives. I think the profession is full of can-do people and people who are driven by ideas and by possibilities and by connections. The essence of, of, of the theatre uh, would be that storytelling or image-making or event-making, whatever that thing or a mixture of any one of those three elements, that the thing that drives people to, to make this kind of work Uh, I think people will keep that flame burning. And I think the audiences who love this form are still, they've shown us this year, even though venues have been closed, they've shown us that they're still uh, driven by a desire to connect with interesting theatre, interesting stories, engaging, entertaining moments, ideas. They want to experience, they want to relate. That's not going to change, it's just finding new outlets. Obviously there are things that we mourn and that we're missing and I know that comes in waves. So, I'm optimistic but I'm aware of all the pressures when the toll of the kind of uncertainty can be blocking and I know I've experienced that myself as a, you know, as as, as a programmer, as a as a leader trying to f- figure out what's next when you can't even gauge what might be down the pipeline a month from now. And I felt that kind of thing about I like and I know that I've seen And spoken with seen artists talking about it, and spoken to artists speaking about it, this kind of thing about an ideas deficit, or uh, how 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 difficult it can be to have an idea in this time frame uh, when you're a performing artist. And probably a saving grace: there's this flip side that suddenly the ideas come, and there's new ideas for a digital collaboration, or there's new ideas for a site based collaboration, or or a different way of working. Uh, so there's lots of new shoots and I think those things those are the kinds of things that make me optimistic.
1: And you've mentioned a few positive effects from the pandemic for the future of theater. What other positive effects are there and how does for instance the rapid digitization of the performing arts scene change the scene um, in the long term?
0: Theater is the, there's something about the theater and performing arts which is an like I think an essential form of human expression. That it will exist in some form, no matter what, because it's primal and it's cardinal or core to our existence. So, in this new digital world, uh, I think—well, it's not that new, but <laughs> maybe everyone feels it is new. I mean, people have been streaming for uh, since the internet came, and there have been many artists who've been exploring what now is is the main field of digital performance for some for some time. So. The positive effects are, I mean, it's been proven in a lot of ways that digital theater is much more accessible for people with disabilities. It's been proven in a lot of ways that the digitization of the performing arts has meant people are finding international audiences for everything they're doing. So you could be streaming something from Hull or Ireland or Montreal and, and have a an audience pop-up that's truly from all around the world. That's exciting. What's exciting is that people are going for it and and that it's getting becoming more sophisticated. Uh, there's more of a shorthand, I think, among audiences. One of the things I was really worried about in the beginning was how will... How will audiences interface with Zoom? How will audiences get a ticket and understand how to do that? And that's actually been solved. It feels like those those kinds of questions have been resolved and, and it's been there's a fluency now that wasn't there before. Now, there's still some real problems with the digital space in that access isn't 100%. So you need internet, you need a computer or a smartphone or a tablet. Not everyone has that. And also uh, there's a hidden ecological cost, isn't there? Because um, Zoom video chat and streaming and all of these things have a carbon cost to them. And that's not an invisible or a, a minus cost, but it is a, it's a significant cost in the sense that it's not, gr- it's not entirely green and uh, ecologically sound, but it's kept things going. It's kept the scene going. It's kept artists going. It's kept audiences involved. And there have been some exciting innovations in terms of form, style. I think those those things will stay uh ourselves we're planning you know for next year and this year hybrid events that things that have live and digital in them we're planning to present digital and, and live work within our programs and I don't think we're alone in that I think that's going to become uh, a common thing uh, around the world
1: mm-hmm. Last spring, some of us thought that the pandemic and lockdown might be brief, and now we know it will be a long recovery, especially for the arts. How has Lyft spent the last months reimagining its role after the pandemic?
0: After the pandemic first hit, we really focused around working deeply on our commissions and reimagining them for this year and the next. So what that means is, um, for example, we're working with a collective from Nairobi called the Nest Collective, They're a film collective. They were meant to fly to London and fly to Cape Town, create these film, evocative film, docu-portraits of featuring Black activists working in Cape Town and London on issues like migration and uh, gender parity and sexuality and health and spirituality. But, of course, the pandemic has meant that they can't travel. So we've devised this way of remote filmmaking. We paired them with local cinematographers here and in Cape Town. And we did this relay, connecting them from their studios in Kenya to us in a studio in South London, uh, and recruiting the the various activists from across the city, all COVID safe, uh, the the sort of COVID safe shoot that we did. And the results were really, really exciting. But that took time to, to pivot to do that. Uh, so we've done that. We're beginning a new artist advancement program that's informed by our conversations with artists via uh, some of the contributions we've been making to the movement around the freelance task force and things like that. After the pandemic, you know, we all tried our hand at furloughing. Uh, we were very lucky that everyone, w- we were able to keep everyone in their roles. Um, this is all after I'm producing the festival and paying all the artists, and every technician who was involved, but like kind of through the summer and into the autumn organizationally we went furloughing meant we reduced activity, but we did keep our, these commissions going. And now um, as we come into 2021, it's our 40th anniversary. We're presenting a season of work this year, probably five to six projects on site and digitally that will get artists and audiences and especially international artists reconnected with London and their projects that are sort of hopefully impervious to whichever tier we might be in that can exist kind of no matter what, they have different versions around how they can exist. Uh, and we're planning a full festival back in our biennial cycle for 2022. You know, we canceled our festival. Uh, like every organization, we had a lot of gut checks about who we were and what we needed to do next. And we found ways through it. You know, we've kept our young people's program alive and going. Uh, we're doing a, a bunch of things this spring with them around um, inter- introductions into advocacy and kind of young people's guide to advocacy on issues that they care about that we're creating with a, um, a spoken word artist and an artist who works a lot with youth, who's called Potent Whisper. So small activities that are sort of seeding things for, for the future, and then hopefully some spectacular things uh, this summer and next next June in the festival.
1: That sounds really exciting. And yet, on top of all of this, there's also Brexit. Brexit is now reality. Mm -hmm. And it's hard maybe to say now, but from your point of view at this moment, what are some major impacts of the Brexit deal for the UK performative arts scene?
0: The major impacts is that there's a lot of chaos right Mm -hmm. now. There's still quite a lot of chaos in how that's rolling out. I think we all, taking coronavirus out aside from the fact, I mean, it's illegal to travel pretty much right now, but for example, the UK's government's denial of visas for independent artists. So you know there was a, a possibility for them to have a visa accord between Europe and and the UK, so artists could travel either side. That didn't go through. So there were some omissions that, that are and gaps in terms of the deal that I'm I'm surprised at and disappointed in. I'm still really and this we knew this even before the deal, but it's still. Like I still really can't believe it that the UK opted to stay out of the Creative Europe program, for instance, or Erasmus. It seems right now it's it's very, there's lots of government, there's lots of advice out there about what to do up to the 31st of December 2020. And now it's, you know, we're in February as we're chatting. So it feels like it's unfinished. What I do know is... And, and what I've sort of heard on the grapevine is that there are people within government departments like DCMS or like the UK funders, like, say, Arts Council England or Arts Council Northern Ireland, Creative Scotland, Arts Council Wales, who are working together and working hard to get more clarity to the sector uh, and working hard at counteracting the what's hard on artists, which is, the, you know, all of a sudden touring to Europe becomes much more expensive. And on the converse for us here, bringing artists here uh, is more expensive and much more difficult. So the good news is, is that it's not impossible. You know, it, it's just that British artists would have to tour to, say, Germany the same way or under, under a different set of rules than they're they're used to. And, you know, there's lots of practice and habits and expertise that's been built up and now is kind of gone and has to be replaced and added to. You know, th- there's lots of logistic ways to get more gray hairs. Uh, and in addition to that... You know, in the press recently there was this sort of diplomatic posturing around the vaccines and who was getting more vaccines and who was getting vaccines in what way. And and that those I mean, all of that diplomatic posturing has an effect on culture and how culture might be used as for soft power for good and for bad. In the summer, as things were starting to open, I really felt the effects of Brexit or noticed the effects of Brexit as the UK was on a completely different kind of travel regime and regime around travel permissions than the rest of Europe. So that makes it things planning collaboration with Europe the way we normally would. And I think we even talked about this last time, but you know, the 2020 festival for instance had projects coming to us from Belgium and then coming to London and then going back to Europe to, or to the continent to play in Germany, all of that stuff you, you can't really count on yet. And that's a shame. Mm.
1: When we last spoke, we also spoke about racism um and- Black Lives Matter has been another big topic of the last year. How has Black Lives Matter changed the UK theatre scene in the past year? And do you think the changes will last?
0: I think what's happening is a change that that is deep. That the Black Lives Matter movement and the way it called everyone to attention this summer uh, changes cultural institutions, cultural organisations approach here in the UK. I think it's forcing us or asking us to shift from a kind of diversity and inclusion model or a model that's based on representation and valuing representation in a way that's saying that's, that's not quite enough. It's becoming clear that an actual anti-racist model and strategy and action plan on all our parts and on each of the individual agents within the sector, but also the sector itself, that that's, what's needed. Strategy is needed. Process is needed um, uh, in order to address inequity. And uh, in order to dismantle whiteness, and in order to uh, move forward, so I hope what survives in that is the responsibility that people are taking, that people are able to have franker discussions without necessarily spotlighting themselves or highlighting themselves. So there's lots, there's still lots of understanding to be done. There's a sort of lots, lots of awareness that has to happen. I, I would say sector wide around what anti-racism means uh, and how we can enact it. And one of the big conversations is about who enacts it and how and and where is the kind of relay between people with lived experience of racism, people who are racialized, and whiteness and white people. And what anti-racist work is about is about dismantling uh, racist structures, structuralized racism, things that are embedded within our society. And both people who suffer from those structures and people who benefit from those structures have to work together to take it down.
1: Let's also take a look at the big picture. What role will theatre play in Western societies and civic life after the pandemic?
0: Well, it's still playing a role in the pandemic. I think it will play a role within all the waves of the pandemic. Remembering that, you know, the way the vaccine is rolling out right now, it's not, it's inequitable. So rich countries are buying up vaccines and vaccinating their people and, and developing company, countries aren't able to access it. We're, you know, probably a long way away from post-pandemic society, ergo a post-pandemic theater society. That that's all to say, I think, like, I think performance, performative arts, and theater are still—they're keeping magic alive. They're keeping the the kind of um, criticality alive uh, in in civic debate, and I hope that's still true. But there's another kind of twist to it. I, you know, I was on this panel earlier in the summer. Matt Adams, who's the co founder of this great UK artis- artistic entity called Blast Theory, uh, who do interactive performances and digitalized performances, he said the greatest digital theater happening in the world right now is QAnon. And he talked about it as this massive real time immersive theater piece. Now, this was last year. This was before we saw how deadly that idea of political theater could be, with the end result being the storming of the Capitol after the U S election. But so, you know, the, people variously call it a cult, but his, he, was put, put saying it's theater. Like it's like immersive, it's immersive theater where there's codes of the performance where the audience is as much audience as they are participant. And they're all involved in this kind of organic long form performance. I thought that was such a provocative idea and one that can show, you know, how much performance or performativity even um, has an impact on society, and not in the way that I think theater people think of it, which is like if we put this play on about, for example, if we put a play on about someone triumphing over triumphing over injustice, that will inspire other people to to call out injustice or to also triumph over injustice. It's a flip, you know. Like if I think a lot of theater people think of theater as an agent for change, and usually that comes along with a kind of politic. And what Matt was perhaps saying was that theaters can also sweep you up and have a different kind of uh, action than uh, being a prescription for something. So at the same but you know, at the same time, I think uh, theater will be a really important part in how we participate and how we experience it as audience members or as participants could have a really important part in term play a really important role in terms of our well-being in terms of societal cohesion and our like our sense of togetherness our sense of belonging as we come in and out of this lockdown cycle or as we imagine how to rebuild as societies see what might happen you know after their economies go stagnant or people deal with massive unemployment how can we find ways of making and encouraging dialogue across rifts uh, and divides in society, I'm wondering for 2022, certainly, how a festival like Lyft, which I want to really wrestle with the headlines, how can we make art and show art that's political, that's about the world we live in, world we live in, and that, that does wrestle with the headlines without necessarily being all about the pandemic, which is a lot of what the headlines are these days. You know, what are we not seeing? I I think it'll be really important for all of us to think of how we can engage with audiences, participants, and communities around ways of art making that are communal, that are constructive, that are enjoyable, that are thought-provoking, and that are shared. There's an enormous opportunity for us to do a kind of reset. But I think that before we were thinking of the reset or the recovery comes after the pandemic, and now I think that it comes during
1: can't wait for it to be over. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Me too. Oh. I know it's like oh, grim doom and gloom, but oh. uh, but we're all living this kind of cl- on this cliffhanger, right? I mean, I yeah. felt so buoyed by the fact that the vaccine was was coming, and I think in the autumn there you know, here in the UK there was a sense of like the government said we could have Christmas and we could have uh, or a hol- meet up with our families and like. And then there's a new variant and everything must shift. So there's there's a lot to, there's still a lot to adapt to.
1: And even with the vaccines, yeah, like you said, I the UK know. may be vaccinated, but then what about the rest of the world? That will take exactly. a very long time.
0: Yeah, uh, perhaps that's realistic. Uh, I still am finding hope in amidst that um, kind of starkness in, in, in the midst of reckoning with like the length of time that it might take, I'm still finding hope and the kind of you asked about optimism earlier. And the, the kind of optimism I'm finding for me, why I work in this field is because I love undeniable ideas and I love the artists that have them. And even still in amidst all of the like, oh, wow, it might be this long. It might take forever or whatever. I am so buoyed by these kind, by ingenuity, and by that idea that someone shares with me that I can't get out of my head. I do get enormous hope from that because I know that that will result in something that audiences can enjoy and feel and engage with, and that's that's still really exciting. Uh, and it's happening; uh, it's happening all around the world.
1: That's such a beautiful end note. Thanks so much, Chris for your time and for sharing all that. Thanks for listening to Talking Culture, a Futures podcast, a production of the goethe Institute London. You've been listening to Chris Nelson, Artistic Director and CEO at Lyft, the London International Festival of Theatre. To learn more about our workshop series, Dramatic Episodes, visit goethe.de slash UK slash Dramatic Episodes. Next time on the podcast... My personal aspirations in relation to blockchain changing the art world is that the art world is reconfigured to be a more equitable, fair, less conservative and experimental space. In the next episode, you'll hear from artists, curators, technologists and researchers who are using blockchain technologies to revolutionize their way of working. The goethe Institute is the Cultural Institute of Germany we foster international culture exchange and enable culture involvement in over 100 countries worldwide. At the Goethe Institute London, we offer German language courses, cultural programs, events, literature, and much more, both on-site and online for audiences throughout the UK and worldwide. You can find out more on our website, goethe.de slash London. For this episode, we worked with Better Lemon Creative Audio and executive producer Hannah Hathman, hosting research and narration by myself. Till next time, I'm Franca Forth.